The recordings that you'll hear shortly are old ones, made in 1950, but they keep history alive for us. It's very easy to take strides backwards in time, and we can use a great span of years in a man to bridge the gap between ourselves and men whose deeds have long since become printed words or enactments, or even legend. Men like Charles Stuart Parnell. We can go back to the living Parnell in one step when we hear these voices. As boys and as adult observers and fellow workers, these men knew him, and they retain an echo of his voice and a memory of his appearance in their hearts. One of these speakers was particularly close to him. He was his friend, his secretary, and the champion of his name, Captain Henry Harrison. On an anniversary of Parnell's death, he said this. It is 59 years ago today since Parnell died. His death was sheer tragedy for Ireland and for Ireland's cause, as well as for his friends and followers who were left grief-stricken and dismayed. I personally was one of them, proud to call him friend and eager to follow where he led. And I remain today as deeply impressed as ever I was with the personal force of his character and the unfailing insight which illumined his intellect and judgment. In all the years of the past, I have met no one, I have known of no one, of comparable qualities in the public life of these islands. No man was ever lied about as Parnell was lied about. No lie was too gross, no calumny too mean to be told about him, to be repeated, even to be recorded about him. I have spent some years in exposing some of the worst lies. I hope in the time left to me to expose some more. And though I name no names, the worst of the lies did not all come from the English. His mother was moved to protest publicly a few days after his death. She said, They say that Charles was selfish, but that is not true. He was more than generous, and those who are trying to traduce his memory of vultures who owe everything to him. She stressed his generosity to herself and to his brothers and to his sister, Mrs. Dickinson, and she went on. He had a great deal of chivalry in his character, and a great pity for women was one of his marked traits. That he had been generous to some of his colleagues was well known in the party, as was also the fact that his money bought him no gratitude. In personal relationships, his simplicity and kindliness of manner, his unselfishness and lack of self-assertiveness, his humour and sociability earned him affectionate friendships that did not fade. Those who visited him at Ochabana for shooting and fishing parties knew and told of this gracious side 
of the political gladiator whose exploits drew down on him the fear, the malice and the vindictiveness of the oppressors of Ireland. If any that hear me wish for confirmation of this aspect of Parnell, let them read what Justin McCarthy and William O'Brien, both his opponents at the, the last, let them read what they have left recorded in their published works. They each were qualified both by long personal knowledge of Parnell and by their literary skill to observe and to describe him. They both stand much higher on the ladder of biographical writing than the later scavengers who have rummaged in the muck heap of scandal and journalistic offal and who knew him not. Around the formidable figure were meetings and demonstrations. Wherever he went in Ireland, bonfires were lit and the bands came out. In Rathdrum, County Wicklow, a small boy, William Comerford, was mascot of the band and trotted before it. He remembered the day and he remembered being spoken to by Parnell. My first recollection of Mr Parnell was a very large meeting in the town of Wicklow. There were several, there were several bands including Rathrum Band, christened by Mr Parnell himself at Avondale. I was only a very small boy, about nine or ten, and put in front of the band with a large picture, with banner and a large picture of Mr. Parnell, the chief himself. The following day, after the meeting, I was playing with other boys at the Flannan Hall, the famous Flannan Hall, where Mr. Parnell when Mr. Parnell and I think a Mr. Corbett were driving on an outside car on his way to Ockabanahy Shooting Lodge. He recognised me and got off the car and shook my hands very warmly. I need not tell you how proud I was and will always remember the great honour of shaking hands with the young Crown King of Ireland. I saw him the last time he visited his home at Avondale. He was driving with his sister, Mrs. Dickinson. It was on a Sunday about two o'clock. He was on his way to Greystones to get train for Dublin. As there was no tra train, bus or motor service those times. Uh, he, was, he, he was on his way to his last meeting in Craig's County Galway. We all cheered him and he was delighted, acknowledging our cheers with both his hands to his hat. He had a, he had a very large rug round his shoulders and looked deadly pale. He did not live long afterwards, God rest his soul. At a meeting in Mallow in those days, one of the people present was Con McSweeney. Later on he served in the Connacht Rangers with the rank of Major and eventually he retired to Ockram not far from the Ochavana he mentions. I was at a Land League meeting in Mallow in the early 1880s. Pardell spoke there. He told the people how to meet the menace of the land grabber, who was very active in mid-Cork at this time. 
The boycott was to be strictly enforced. I don't think he used the word boycott. But he was careful to say that the League had no connection with moonlighting. He spoke as one of the authority and was listened to respectfully but with no great enthusiasm. The boycott was enforced. Captain Moonlight carried on with his activities and grabbing ceased in mid-cork. There was also very much less evictions. Many years after I ran up against not Parnell but crowded memories of him in the barracks at Ochavana. Parnell used to come to Ochavana every August for the grouse shooting. He invariably had the two Redmonds, John and Willie, with him. To said, he used to bring the Redmonds with him so often because they were gentlemen and dead shots both. He couldn't bear the sight of a wounded bird. Parnell had a superstitious horror of the green. He thought it brought ill luck. So the Irish flag was never flown over Achavan in his time. But Redmond, a Wexford man, with crowded memories of, nine, of the 98 men and their pikes and the flag they fought under so well, flung its falls to the breeze on all possible occasions. John P. Hayden was proprietor and editor of the Westmeath Examiner. He was also a member of Parliament. He sat at Westminster during part of three reigns, Queen Victoria's, King Edward VII's and King George V's. He saw five Prime Ministers, Arthur Balfour, Campbell Bannerman, Asquith and Lloyd George. And his memory of those days was as clear and precise as his speech at the age of 87. Well, the first time I saw him was in, as well as I remember, uh, 78, uh, at a meeting in Roscommon. After that, uh, at that period, I was at meetings of his in the county Roscommon and in the county Longford in 78, 79, 80 and 81. Well, uh, he, I was still in my teens. He made a wonderful impression on me uh, as a clear speaker with a voice re far reaching, uh, his words clear cut, no unnecessary verbiage. Uh, and it must be remembered that he spoke under circumstances that the present generation can have little knowledge of. And without some knowledge of that period, it's difficult to understand the difficulties he had to surmount and the greatness of his achievements in, a, in his short leadership. Uh, at that time, in the 70s, every position of power and authority in the country was held by people 
adverse to the national aspirations of the people, from the highest to the lowest. The land system uh, was a, a unique and was described by impartial Englishmen as the worst in the world. The farmers were uh, at the absolute mercy of the landlords or their agents. Could be evicted uh, on short notice without any cause except the will of the landlord. All that was changed in a very short time by the agitation conducted by Parnell, by the Act of 1881, which created uh, dual ownership that led eventually uh, and logically to occupying ownership. When the divorce proceedings began, Parnell was, in the public eye, at the height of his career. Even Scotland had succumbed to him and honoured him at a public dinner in Edinburgh. He was chairman of the Irish Parliamentary Party, having succeeded Butt as leader. Butt, who believed in the niceties and traditions of debate and disapproved of the abstractionist tactics of the nationalist politicians. He was president of the Land League, founded by Michael Davitt. At home, his words rang through the country. Keep a firm grip on your homesteads. The historian Justin McCarthy called him the most remarkable politician who had risen on the field of Irish politics since the day John Mitchell was conveyed away to Bermuda. He was truly the uncrowned king of Ireland. But in 1890 came the result of the divorce proceedings and we moved to Committee Room 15 in the House of Commons where Parnell called the party together. John Hayden, to whom we've been listening, knew that he would continue as a supporter of Parnell to the end of his days. But he hadn't yet entered Parliament. His brother Luke was the member, and John P. Hayden, though firm in his own mind, wasn't sure what his brother at Westminster was going to do. My brother was a member for Leitrim at the time of the split. Uh, and not knowing what was going to take place, he attended a meeting the annual meeting of the party in London. On his way, he told me that uh, he would write to me telling me how things were going. I didn't hear from him all that week because the meet uh, he explained to me that the party had come to an understanding that they would not communicate with friends in Ireland, nor in any way would they try to influence opinion. I had to write an, a leader for my own paper here in Mullingar and for his paper in Roscommon. And without knowing what he was doing, I wrote an article for his papers in strong support of Parnell. Uh, well, I was very glad I needn't say when it turned out uh, that I was on the right side for him. Yes. Uh, I knew, of course, I, I felt I was on the right side for myself, of course. Yes. Uh, 
because no matter what anyone has had done, I would have supported Parnell. But the united and unqualified support of Parnell by the Irish Parliamentary Party didn't last long. The split came, and Mr Gladstone had more than a little to do with it. The Liberals had come into office mainly on the strength of their home rule campaign, and being in power, they intended to remain there, whether it suited Ireland or not. John Morley had told Gladstone that if he supported Parnell, he would lose the big nonconformist vote. It was evident that he'd lose many other supporters as well, and so Gladstone addressed a letter to the Irish party demanding Parnell's resignation. This letter brought about the split, because many of the party agreed that the support of Gladstone and the Liberals was essential to home rule. But Parnell saw himself as something more than a member of Parliament representing a piece of territory. He was, till that moment, the leader of the Irish people, and he refused, as chairman, to put a resolution concerning his own resignation. Forty-five of the members of the Irish party went to another room and declared that he was no longer the leader. Twenty-six remained loyal to him. Parnell now decided to form a nationalist party completely free from English party ties, and he turned to a group with which he'd never had much to do. Davitt, who had abandoned him, called them the Hillside Men. They were the Fenians. Parnell, in my opinion, was a man that believed in the right of Ireland to free herself uh, by any lawful means. He was not a man in favour of force other than legitimate warfare. He was strongly against outrages of any sort. Uh, that was shown after the Phoenix Park murders, when he publicly tendered his resignation as leader. Uh, that had such a dreadful effect upon him that he was quite prepared to retire from public life. The new campaign was the start of Parnell's retirement not only from public life but from life itself. Last time that I met Parnell was at in the train at the railway station of Mullingar. Uh, through this town he had to pass on, uh, uh, on his way to all his meetings in the West. Uh, a number of his supporters always met him at the station, and it was customary for him to make a brief speech to them, to us, whilst the train was in the station. Uh, on this occasion, he was accompanied by Dr. Joe Quinn, who was an official of the National League. And when the train arrived, Dr. Quinn put his head out through the wind at the, at the window and asked for me and told me Mr. Parnell was not well enough to make a speech, but that he would like to speak to me. And I sat in the carriage with him for about five minutes whilst uh, the train delayed and he went off then to Roscommon for his last public meeting which took place in Craig's in the County Galway. And so 
the story moves to Craig's. That man has death in his eyes, someone had said in Mullingar Station. And this was Parnell's last and bitterest fight. He'd seen his party split in two, and now, wherever he went, he demanded a purely nationalist party, unallied to any English political party. Michael Murray of Knockmuskal, near Craig's, heard him speak that day. Well, he said that he did his best for the tenant farmers of Ireland, and that he also put a stop to the tyranny of landlordism. Mm -hmm. He also said that today the tenant farmers of Ireland, that their homes are their castle. Well, years previous to that, they couldn't say that. After they paid their rent, the landlord could come with his battered and ram and evict them. Yes. He said that he hoped to be able to do more for the Irish people, but that today, unfortunately, his health was poor. Yes. And that today's own, some of his own dogs were barking at him. Hmm. He didn't mention any name. Did you understand him to mean anything? I understood that it was some of his own colleagues in the House of Commons. Yes. Some of the Irish party. Were you Perhaps you heard an infant cry behind that voice. That was John, a grandson who must be going on for 13 years old now, and who can tell people that he was carried in the arms of men who heard Parnell speak. That's how we step back in time. And now we return to County Wicklow, and John Kelly of Belize. He played for Parnell's cricket team. He remembered volunteers coming to Avondale to save the harvest when the leader was in Kilmainham, and at a very great age, he talked about the Land League. The people was evicted here. All round here? Uh, big, uh, around here. There was mornings in New Barn and buried against the slave Own, Burns of Broad Street, and... Where did he sense? Where did he sense here around, huh? And Tim Mullen. And, and, the, and the man that, uh, that took us, the man that took the, 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 the these farms was a publican in Rathroom. Yes. His, his name was Sarl. Sam Sarl, you know that, Sarl, about that. Well, the league became very strong here. Huh? Yeah. The league was very strong. We never was a, there was a, a division of the national organization in Rathroom. We never was a, there was a, a bunch of the National League, the United Irish League, and the commenced first with the land leg. And the land leg was proclaimed here, and there was a ladies' land leg formed. And Mrs. Cowley and Mrs. O'Neill and Mrs. Mulhern and, and Miss Bourne and a whole lot of those was in it. Well, now, the last you saw of Parnell was uh, at Kingstown. At King Kingstown, yes. The last I saw was at Kingstown. I show that little book there. That was that his, there. his last journey? That was his last journey. He said he'd come back on Saturday. But he never did. He never he, did. He never came back dead. He came back dead. Oh. He came back dead. And on the very day that he'd given for his return. One of the great political legal figures of a later age, Sergeant Sullivan, was then doing part-time newspaper work. The news was slow to come to Ireland and slow to be believed. As assistant editor of the evening press, I was writing my London letter when the door opened and my stone man, Lane, entered. He handed me a crumpled slip of paper and said, I believe that that's true. On the paper in a boyish hand was written, Parnell is 
gate. I had a conviction myself that it was true, and I at once had the news set and settled on the machine and had the placards printed, and then I paused. I was assistant editor of a fiercely anti-Parnellite paper and could take no risk. Accordingly, I put on my hat and I went to my old Parnellite friends, Tim Harrington, Dr. Joe Kenny, Val Dillon, put my head in the National Club and found that there was no sign of news affecting Parnell current in Dublin at the time. Accordingly, I got on to our London correspondent and ordered him to personally interview Parnell. I had to wait there with the greatest journalistic scoop of the day settled on my machines, and it was an hour and a half before I received a telegram from Brighton. Parnell died here last night, and in a few minutes my machines were roaring it to the world. The anonymous message had come from a telegraph boy who delivered a message to Parnell's sister and heard someone exclaim, Parnell is dead. The boy was a friend of Lane, the stone man, mentioned by Sergeant Sullivan, and he passed on the news. Lane could be alive still, but most of the voices you've heard have gone from us, and we've no record at all of the voice of Parnell. But as long as anyone holds an acre of land to himself and for himself, the memory of Parnell will endure. And it was to symbolise this that they placed above his grave in Glasnevin a single rock of granite from his own county of Wicklow, a rock not cut into conformity with his surroundings, as he himself never conformed, a rock bearing upon it the single word of power that once could have united Ireland. One last word. Parnell was the least self-conscious of men. His simple sincerity of thought and action left no room for posing. I myself heard him in committee room 15 when the tormenting obscurities left by a part-told tale clamoured for explanation. For me, his words brought full reassurance. He told us, I would rather appear to be dishonourable than be dishonourable. <laughs>